like you, I, I am kind of living in a, in a slight daze, just quite frankly. Uh, I'm looking at a world that I don't really recognize. I, I am not a Glenn Beck devotee. At the same time, Glenn puts a lot of information out that is helpful to me. And uh, he said, probably a couple of years ago, maybe even three, he said, the time is coming when you're going to wake up one day and you're going to look out the window and you're not going to recognize the world. Was he right or what? Now, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where the world is going. I don't know if this is a little speed bump. I don't know if this is a blip on the radar or where this is the signal that America has been in a tailspin for so long that we may be headed for, you know, ultimate disaster. I, I do not know. I know that periodically we, we kind of get a window into what the left is doing, and it's intensifying. They're, they're not letting up. And I think it's important that we understand that, and then as Christians have a proper way to synthesize all of this in what we call a biblical worldview. That's what a biblical worldview does. It gives us a lens by which we can ground ourselves in eternal truths and then take those eternal truths and apply them to temporary situations. That's very important. I want you to catch that. A biblical worldview will ground you in eternal truth, but then allow you to take that truth and filter temporary situations or circumstances. And it's about the only way that we can deal with it. But I'll tell you, I believe it's the only way that Christians have dealt with it through all the centuries. We're not the first ones to experience confusing, head-scratching times. In fact, still, we're some of the most blessed people that ever lived on the planet, you know. There have been times far worse than what any of us have faced and so we don't really know. We're trying to process this. So I, I struggle, I'll be honest with you, in trying to stay in the middle, to, say, to keep my mind in the middle. It's like the old bronc riders and bull riders used to say, you've got to keep your mind in the middle. You've got to keep your head in the middle. And it's really hard to do that sometimes because of what is going on around us. I think it would be dereliction of duty on, on our part to simply ignore what's going on around us as though nothing different is going on around us, and then just do business as usual. In fact, I'm convinced business as usual in the church is what's caused what's going on all around us right now. So it, it's with that heart that, that Paul and I try to approach this. We don't want to wear you out. We, we certainly don't want to, as Paul said a few days ago to me, we don't want to be doomsday prophets. First of all, we, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. He and I both pretty much see eye to eye on biblical prophecy of the end times, what is called eschatology, and, and we, we agree on what ultimately will happen, but we don't know where we are on that timeline, as, as I've often said to you. So I don't know if we're right on the cusp of the rapture of the church, or whether the rapture of the church is 50, 100 years from now, 150 years from now. Remember, a thousand years to the Lord is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. The Lord doesn't have to be in any hurry, and at the same time, uh, he doesn't have to, to drag his heels because time is irrelevant to God, certainly not irrelevant to us. We're granted some 70 to 80, typically, years. So every year counts for all of us. And then we have children and grandchildren. And then ultimately, if we live long enough, we get to see great-grandchildren. So time is of the essence to us. So we all have a hard time trying to figure out where are we 
in this overall scheme of God. And so when, when I come before you on Sundays, and, and Paul as well, and I think I can speak for him, we struggle with how do we bring biblical truth uh, out of the eternal and help all of us to filter the temporary that's going on all around us because we have to do that. There was a preacher during the War of Independence named James Caldwell. If you've been around me for very long, you've heard about him. Uh, I, I tell his story in the Black Robe presentation. He's the one that ultimately was passing out the Isaac Watts hymns, having them to stuff them down their barrels saying, give them Watts, boys, give them Watts. Well, James Caldwell would go back and forth with the army, but when he could be in his town of Elizabethtown, New Jersey, he would be in his pulpit to preach on Sundays, like most of the black robe guys did if they could. And there were many Sundays during the war when it finally came to that New Jersey area where he would preach and the church was a total disaster because it had been a hospital all week long. Sometimes there were still wounded soldiers lying on some of the pews bandages all over the place, the place in disarray. So much so that sometimes the entire congregation had to stand for the whole service because there was nowhere decent to sit. And yet they continued. Now, do you think they might have been scratching their heads saying, what in the world has happened to our world? Of course they were. Of course they were. And the separatists that we call pilgrims, same thing. But there are things happening around us that we cannot ignore. And so this past week, speaking into the camera, talking to some her, if you can imagine it, 8 million plus Instagram followers, AOC said this, we're going to have to figure out how to rein in our media environment so you can't just spew disinformation and misinformation. Let me stop right there. What media do you think she's talking about? ABC, CBS, PMS, NBC, CNN, the Communist News Network. I mean, what, what, what do you think she's talking about? Well, she's talking about anything conservative, anything Christian, right? She goes on to say media literacy and the lack thereof is a part of what happened here. She's talking about the capital disaster and all of that. Now, I guess she defines what is literate in media and what isn't. It's one thing to have different opinions, but it's another thing entirely to just say things that are false so that that's something we're looking into. Now, I guess she's the arbiter of what is true, what is false. I can say, and this is the scary part, there is absolutely a commission being discussed. A commission on what? On the truth in the media. Of course, all the big media outlets will fail that test unless... The test is skewed to only filter out conservative opinions. She goes on to say, and you'll like this, the southern states are not red states. They are suppressed states. Which means the only way that our country is going to heal is through the actual liberation of southern states. The actual liberation of the poor, the actual liberation of working people from economic, social, and racial oppression. That's the only way. That's the only way. You know, that's exactly what communists have always said. We must liberate the people. Now, understand, their liberation normally comes with barbed wire, machine gun towers, uh, gas chambers, and ovens, and mass trench graves. So when someone like AOC starts to say, we're going to liberate the southern states, that 
concerns me. You say, well, yeah, but you know, there's, there's a limit to what they can do. Really? Because this is Governor Phil Murphy from New Jersey. Governor Phil Murphy's administration has been fighting this gentleman, Ian Smith. He's the co-owner of uh, Attila's Gym in Belmawer, uh, New Jersey. They've been fighting now, however you say that name. They, they've been fighting for eight months because he's been staying open when they've told him he has to shut down. Now, get what they just did this week. Direct quote from him. As of this morning, that would have been January the 13th, without warning and without permission, and in the middle of litigation, Governor Murphy took it upon himself to empty our bank account entirely to the tune of $165,000. The government of New Jersey zeroed out their bank account. How do you legally do that? Right. Of course, we all realize that the days of you putting money in the bank and believing that money is sitting there in a vault, there's some money in the vault, but your money's not there. Your money is zeros and ones, remember? Computer binary language. So all you have to do is hit a delete button. You don't need Jesse James. All you need is the governor of New Jersey. He might be wearing a mask. He might not. But he can zero out your account. Now listen to this patriot. This will not stop us. We will not stand down. We will continue to fight this fight because we know, based upon what is outlined in the Constitution, that when we get to the right courts and in front of a judge who respects the Constitution, there are very few of those anymore, we will win this case. And we will make sure that no governor or no government official will ever wield these powers ever again. Now, I, I applaud. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's good. Here's the thing. You say, well, that's New Jersey. Yeah, but it can come to Oklahoma real fast. We'll give you one other example. This is a couple that you may have been following. The lady on the right is Leanne Miller. This is her husband. Not long ago, she started a, an Internet-based business called Patriotic Me. And basically what she does is she simply sells, she makes and sells patriotic clothing. Obviously, they're both wearing items that they sell. She has been permanently banned from Facebook for selling patriotic clothing. Now, I don't know whether she's a conservative or a lefty. I doubt she's a lefty. But she may be somewhere in the middle. She doesn't even, at least on air, when I've heard her interviewed, doesn't even make a point of what she believes politically. She's just selling patriotic clothing. So patriotic clothing can get you permanently banned from Facebook. Now, the reason why I bring up these examples is not to dis disturb you, not to depress you, but it is to remind you that there really is a war going on around us. Now, there always has been. If you look at the history of Christianity, there's always been a war. Think back to the early church with the Roman Empire trying to, to literally snuff out the gospel. Hundreds, thousands of Christians martyred in places like the Colosseum, turned into human torches, along the Appian Way as their bodies were covered in tar and they were impaled on large 
spears, and then their bodies were set on fire, and they lit like streetlights the Appian Way. Great Christians through the years, disciple of John the Apostle named Polycarp, who was burned at the stake, who incensed his tormentors as the flames were leaping up around his body, he was singing praises to God. And they began to throw spears into his body, and no doubt some of his blood was extinguishing some of the flames that were burning him alive. I mean, the story is long, and the stories are almost endless. Paul's reminded us many, many times, read Fox's book of martyrs. The greatest Christians who've ever lived. But you don't even have to read Fox's book of martyrs. You can read the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Most likely Paul, writing that book, lists some of the great heroes that we're all familiar with. And he said, well, I'm running out of time and space here. And so I can't name all of these people. And then he starts talking about the unnamed multitudes who were persecuted, treated poorly. Some of them, many of them martyred. And then he says about them, of whom the world was not worthy. So there's nothing new about this. The very reason that we celebrate Thanksgiving is because a group of separatist Christians who had already broken English law and left England without permission, having lived in Holland, then came to the New World, and because of the storm that blew them off track, they were in violation of the law again because they settled somewhere where they didn't have a charter to settle. And yet, we celebrate every Thanksgiving the wonderful testimony of these people who wrote down that the reason they came was not primarily for religious freedom, oddly enough. It was to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, they said. And they did. There's nothing new about any of this. Jump forward a little over a hundred years to what we call our patriots of the War of Independence and the framers and all of the sacrifice that was made, not just by men on the battlefield, but I tell stories of the women left behind. Pam and I have in that Black Robe Museum a musket that was owned by David and Prudence Wright. And remember, a couple of years ago, I preached Founding Mother's Sermon. You ladies that were here, you remember that. We have her musket. Led the women of Pepperell, Massachusetts to ambush British soldiers dressed in their husband's clothes, most of them carrying pitchforks and torches. And were successful. The stories are just endless. So it's nothing new. The gospel, which is ultimately the target, guys, make no mistake about it. All conservatives are in the crosshairs, but in the very bullseye of the crosshairs is the gospel. It's the church. And the easy way to see that is that that is the institution that they've refused to call essential service through this whole pandemic and have done everything they can do to stop the church, not strip joints, but the church. So there's nothing new about any of this. So as believers, how do we navigate these difficult waters. And, and I've been preaching about that. In fact, for the last probably two months that I've spoken, uh, I, I, that's kind of been the theme. But my intent is not to bring so much focus on what's going on around us as much as it is to bring focus onto what do we do as believers? What do we do? Now, I put out a Facebook post this week that I think got a lot of attention. And uh, I'm glad. 
Because you hear all of these things and people saying, well, violence is never an option and you shouldn't do this. And we all agree that what happened at the Capitol was a disaster that should not have happened. Now the truth's beginning to leak out that it wasn't just a bunch of Trump supporters. It was Antifa and BLM. Now, I think there were probably some fringe Trump folks that were mixed up in it. I'm not defending anybody, and that shouldn't have happened. That is not the way to handle this. But I think the bottom line that all of us are asking, because I'm asked it, I don't know, I think I'm asked it at least once a day, Paul. I don't know if you, but if you are too. Sometimes more than that, what do we do? And is resistance ever the Christian option? Now, I can't deal with all of that in one message. So this is the first part of a two-part sermon, probably preach the second part a couple of weeks from today. So just kind of when we get to the end, let's pause and we'll pick it back up. But I think all of us have to be able to come to a biblical understanding of a lot of things to know what to do, whatever the answers are, whatever your convictions are, you better have a plan in your mind. You better know who you are and what we should do. So I want to talk today in part one about the basis for everything that we do. And I believe it's all based on stewardship. This message is entitled Good Steward, Bad Steward. Now typically when we hear a message on stewardship, it's sometime toward the end of the year. Many churches dedicate a period of time in November to teach on giving, tithing. And so most churches will do a series of sermons on what does the Bible say about tithing? What does the Bible say on giving? Because we're typically during that period of time planning for the new year's budget coming up after the new year. And we're closing out the church budget of that year, obviously. And so a series on stewardship is a good fit for that time of the year right before you get into the Christmas season. Unfortunately for most of us, when we hear the word stewardship, I think we typically think of tithing and giving money and we think that's stewardship. Well, that's only a little sliver of stewardship. And so my hope today and what I, what I hope to accomplish here is to help us to see way beyond giving a tithe and an offering. I'm not even going to talk about tithing and offering. What I've already said about tithing and offering is all I'm going to say about that. Because stewardship goes so far beyond that. So I want to read a passage of Scripture to kind of let it be our our base of operations here. It's in Luke 12, verses 42 through 46. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Catch all these phrases. All that he has. Doing what I told you to do. The faithful servant. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. And begins to beat the male and female servants, obviously under his authority. And to eat and drink and be drunk, derelict on the job, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Now this is somewhat of a parable that Jesus is telling here. Obviously, he's the master. 
His followers are the servants in this story. And he says at the bottom, kind of an alarming thing, that it's possible for believers to almost look like unbelievers. Now, I want to get too doctrinal in this passage because it's always kind of an iffy thing to take a parable and to try to teach doctrine. So we've got to be very careful with parables. I've seen a lot of people go astray theologically by trying to make things out of parables that maybe aren't there or weren't intended. But I think there's an overarching truth here that we can all get. And that idea is, is that Jesus sees those who know him as stewards. And we're either the good steward or we're the bad steward. Now, if you're a believer and you're a bad steward, I still believe, Scripture teaches, you're a believer. But every one of us is going to account for ourselves. So let's talk about stewardship here. And the first thing that I want to ask is, what is a steward? What is a steward? Because most of us, as I said, think that a steward is a person who tithes regularly and then maybe sometimes gives offerings, and that's a steward. Stewards do that, but that in and of itself does not define a steward. So what is a steward? A steward literally is a person whose job is to manage the land and property of another person. Someone who utilizes and manages all of the resources God provides for the glory of God and the betterment of His creation. So the first half of that definition would apply to believers and unbelievers. An unsafe person could be a steward, a vice president of a corporation, uh, a a high-ranking employee uh, in another company. Maybe they've been given authority over the entire company under the CEO or the owner or the board. Well, that person is a steward. Now, they're not a spiritual steward, although everything we do ultimately becomes spiritual because Jesus said there's not a word that we say, there's not a thing that we do that will not be brought to light. So ultimately, everything we do is spiritual even when we think it's just, well, that's just material. Well, the Bible says at the judgment, the books are going to be open and all people's works that are lost are going to be listed. So we have to be careful about, well, that's not spiritual. I tend to think everything is spiritual. But then the second half of that definition is the spiritual implication. It's someone who utilizes and manages all the resources God provides for the glory of God and the betterment of His creation. Now there's where we come in. We certainly qualify to the first half of the definition, but certainly the second half describes us. So then, is that what you're doing? Based upon your job description, based upon my job description as a Christian steward, am I fulfilling my duty or am I derelict in my duty? Let's look at some verses of Scripture. For instance, Matthew 25, 14 Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like this. That means you and I are like those stewards. Matthew 20, verse 8. So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first, out of a different parable. But the point is undeniable that Jesus clearly sees us as his stewards. So how important is a steward? Well, 
A steward is so important that he or she will often determine whether the master's business will succeed slash prosper. Now, in the spiritual sense, we know that God's kingdom will ultimately prevail. We know that God's will will ultimately be accomplished on this earth. In fact, Jesus included that in the outline that we call the Lord's Prayer. And he says we're to pray that God's kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wouldn't have asked us to pray that if it's not going to be done. I believe it will ultimately be accomplished in the millennium and then in the new earth that is to come. But I definitely believe that God's kingdom and His plan will be accomplished. We all agree on that. We may disagree on how it comes about, but I think we all agree on that if we're believers. But in a lesser sense, and this is something that I've always struggled with as a believer, I don't believe that God's will will always be done in the individual believer. Because that would negate will. That would negate the process of sanctification. That would negate the process of needing a judgment seat of Christ for believers once we've died. Because if God's will will always be accomplished in us, there would be no disobedience. We would all be growing at the rate at which we ought to be spiritually. And there would be nothing to answer for at the judgment seat of Christ except for all of the massive rewards that we would have earned in our lives because we're all equally faithful. And we know that's not true. Paul also warns that we not kind of become a disgrace to grace. He said, I don't want to become one who is disqualified for the reward. He never calls eternal life a reward. That's always a gift. You don't earn eternal life. But you do earn rewards. A lot of people think of heaven as a reward. Heaven's not a reward. Salvation is not a reward. That was bought and paid for in agony and blood on the cross. But there are rewards that Christians can earn, that we're supposed to earn. If you read Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, tells us that you can't earn your salvation, you can't do it by good works. But then verse 10 says, but you are saved to do good works. And this is what James is focusing on in his book that bears his name as the title, the book of James. He's saying, look, if your faith is effective, then it's going to prove that, it's going to prove itself in the works that you do. And if your works don't match up with your faith, then either you're in disobedience to God or you may not even be a believer. It's very important that we understand this. So then, in my life, God's will can succeed and prosper, or by an act of my will... I may step out and become disobedient, and some of the things that God is doing in my life may not succeed and prosper. The same is true for you. And pastors can become disqualified, elders can become disqualified, and that's a serious thing when it happens in the church. We've all seen it, we've all heard of it, many of us have been hurt by it. So, that's how important a steward is. So with that in mind then, Let's consider this thought. You are a steward. You are. Certainly if you're a believer, you're a steward in the kingdom of God. But even if you're not a believer, you're a steward. You work for someone or you own a business and you run it and ultimately you're accountable to people. We're all stewards, but what I'm really focusing in on here is for the believer and the stewardship that we bear. Notice what Paul told Titus about 
pastors that he calls bishops here must be blameless as what? A steward of God. To the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 17, he says about his own life, he said, For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. Notice the distinction between if I do this willingly, I've earned the gift of eternal life. No, 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 no. He's talking about rewards. And he says, but if against my will, meaning if I won't do what God wants me to do, it's the opposite. I have been entrusted with a stewardship. So you... And I are stewards. Look at other passages. Colossians 1, 24, 25. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God, which was given to me to fulfill the word of God. Paul was quite aware of the fact that he was a steward. Let me read this other verse, 1 Peter 4.10. As each one has received a gift, that's meaning a spiritual gift, every Christian in this room has at least one spiritual gift, not a talent, not some kind of aptitude to do something. No, no, no. A spiritual supernatural gift. The Bible teaches what those are. We don't have time for that today. But you have a spiritual gift. Minister it to one another as what? Good church members. No, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So you and I are stewards of God, and we're to be using what God has put into our lives, spiritual gifts, possessions, opportunity, time. All of those things are to be used as stewards. So then the question obviously follows, what are you a steward of? Well, my goodness, the list could probably be endless. Uh, for instance, the Bible says you're a steward of yourself. Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven that you need to love the Lord your God with all of your what? All your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Spirit, soul, and mind. Spirit, soul, and body. So you're to be a steward of your own life. Are you doing that? Are you policing yourself? Are you making certain that you are what God wants you to be? Are you bringing your mind into the captivity of the Lord? Are you committing your life to spiritual pursuits that will last for all eternity? Are you aware of the fact that family members and friends don't know the Lord and therefore you are a representative for Christ every time you're around them? Are you making good stewardship of yourself? And then you can read the list. You're a steward of your family. You have been entrusted with these little people that come along that become big people. And they are entrusted to you for a very short period of time. And there have been libraries of books written on good, solid, biblical parenting. And I'm telling you that I've watched over the years, and though there is no guarantee, there is no hard and fast rule, but I have watched when people are serious about their pursuit of the Lord, and they practice it at home, not just at church. Even though they're sincere when they're at home, but they don't practice their faith at home, their kids begin to say, well, 
then that must be a game. They act churchy when they're at church, but they don't act churchy when they're at home. But when parents don't do that, and they understand their stewardship, you know what happens to their kids? They want what their parents have. And they come to know the Lord. Now, our children all have individual wills, and ultimately they have to choose. But you're a steward of your family. You're a steward of your faith. Are you growing in your faith to the place that people can look at your faith walk? Because remember the word faith ultimately becomes faithful. That means full of faith. So when you're faithful, that means you're full of faith. Are you being a good steward of that faith? What about your church? Do you do Everything that you can do to make Fairview the place that you know God wants it to be, or do you just attend here? Because that's very different. Normally, those people who attend a church will always say, Well, I wish they would do. And then they list the things that aren't quite right, things that they don't necessarily agree with. Well, I wish they would fix this. I wish they would do that. You can always tell the difference. And then others say, Man, we need to do. And they'll jump in and help. Whatever it is. Are you being a good steward of your church? Now, what about your community? See, this is where most Christians stop. Everybody in most churches in America would be yelling an amen at all of this. But then we start stepping into the community. Have you ever served on the school board? Have you ever served on the city council? Have you ever been on the library board? Do you ever go to council meetings? Do you go to school board meetings? Do you engage your stewardship in your community? Do you go to precinct meetings, Porter? Are you involved at the precinct level, which is basically your neighborhood? That's manageable. You say, well, I can't affect the whole community. Well, you can affect your neighborhood, can't you? Well, I've made so many enemies out of them. I've been so unchristlike that they all hate my guts. Well, then maybe... Some repentance is necessary. But the bottom line is, you're a steward of your community. We all know that the communities are the building blocks. All of these pieces are building blocks. And the reason the house is falling down is the individual blocks have been neglected or not even inserted into the wall. Well, no wonder the structure is falling down around our ears. We're not the stewards that we've been called to be. Now, what about your country? Or I could have said your liberty. So see, now in some people's books, I've gone political and they've turned me off. Preachers aren't supposed to preach politics. I haven't said anything about Democrats or Republicans. I can't stand either one of them. But your country, your liberty, are you being a good steward of that? Friend, you have inherited something That few people in history have inherited. There have been very few people in the history of this world. Some 6,000 years to this point. Who have had liberty like we have had. Would you think that that just happened? Do you think that we were just lucky? That somehow Americans are better people? That North America somehow is just a more fertile place? No, it's because people who came before us understood their stewardship responsibilities. And they did it. Of course, now we haven't done that. 
So the thing is falling down around our ears, and now Christians are trying to say, well, what should I do? Should I get engaged? Should I, uh, should I stand up? Should I speak out? Or should I just silently let the leftists and the Marxists take over? Well, aren't you glad that those who came before you didn't take that option? Aren't you happy that the young men who stormed the beaches of Normandy in 1944 didn't just say, well, I'll let somebody else take care of that. I'm going to a prayer meeting. You know there were Christians that died on that beach. Aren't you happy that the pilgrims didn't say, well, you know, Holland's not that bad after all. I mean, yeah, it's decadent. Our kids are picking up really horrible habits. But, you know, I mean, you know, it's a pretty nice place. Very prosperous. I'm afraid of the ocean. I don't like small, confined areas like little ships like the Mayflower. And I don't want to do all that. I'm not a farmer. I mean, a thousand different reasons. Aren't you glad they didn't do that? They took their stewardship of their country and their liberty seriously. Now, this is my gang. We could have put the picture of your gang. Your gang is just as special to you as my gang is to me. I know mine are prettier and more handsome and smarter than yours. And if you had the picture of your gang up here, yours would be prettier and more handsome and smarter than mine. I get that. But this is my little gang. Now, there's one more on the way. So it's going to number six. It's going to be five boys and that one little lone girl. But I have a stewardship to them. They're looking to me. Now, they're too young to know that yet. But they were looking to me. What am I going to do with Lucy in the yellow pants there? What am I going to do if Lucy comes to me one day when she's 18? And she says, Geese, where were you when the Marxists were taking our liberties away? And I say, well, sweetheart, I was at a prayer meeting. Sweetheart, I was at the seminary. I wasn't being political, sweetie. I, you know, you just Christians shouldn't be political. We couldn't do anything to resist because Christians are pacifists. So we couldn't do anything. We just had to love them and say, go in peace as they burn down our liberties all around us. God, help me that that's not what I would say to her. God, help me that I can say to her, I was doing everything I knew how to do, Lucy. There just weren't enough of us. Because the church was too busy being pious. The church was too busy praying when they should have been fighting too. They say, there it is. He told us to load our guns. There's lots of ways to fight. So I want you to listen to what some of our predecessors had to say. Now, in their day, they considered voting to be the safeguard. Ha, 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 right? But you see, they couldn't have fathomed what went on on November the 3rd in their day. They thought that they had put all of these safety precautions and checks and balances so that none of that stuff would happen. So you're going to see a lot of them referring to voting. Well, they believed that patriotism and their Christian stewardship and duty went beyond just voting, but they thought voting was kind of the the mark. Listen to what John Jay, first Supreme Court Justice, Providence, 
has given to our people the choice of their rulers. Now, providence to them was God. And it is the duty. Notice these words, duty, as well as the privilege and interest. Notice you have an interest in this. This is going to affect you of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Now, innately in that is that Christians get involved in politics or you can't have Christian rulers. So clearly John Jay believed that Christians ought to get involved in government. The idea of separation of church and state to them was ludicrous. And it ought to be to us. He goes on. The Americans are the first people whom heaven has favored with an opportunity of deliberating upon and choosing the forms of government under which they should live. Now notice what he's saying here. You've been given a trust, a stewardship. What will you do with it? Listen to Sam Adams. In 1781, let each citizen remember at the moment he is offering his vote, that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society for which he is accountable to God and his country. Now, understand, as I told you in the preface, vote to them was, man, that was critical. Today, most Christians don't even vote. Half of the Christian population in America aren't even registered to vote. Maybe higher than that. And then among those who are registered, even fewer of them actually even will go vote. Now, we realize voting has become so easy, it's the least we can do. In those days, it was a little different than that because you didn't vote with the king telling you every move to make. You've got Noah Webster who comes along and says, When a citizen gives his suffrage to a man of known immorality, he abuses his trust. Notice this word trust here. Stewardship is what they're saying. He sacrifices not only his own interest, but that of his neighbor. So you're not just blowing your own future. You're blowing the future of those little kids that I showed you a moment ago on that bench. They're just too little to know it yet. He betrays the interest of his country. You see a common theme here? Jump to Daniel Webster. If we and our posterity reject religious instruction and authority, violate the rules of eternal justice, trifle with the injunctions of morality, and recklessly destroy the political constitution. Notice he's tying religious faith into political constitution, which holds us together. No man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us that shall bury all our glory in profound obscurity. God help us that we'd have some Daniel Webster's today who would say that in the pulpit. He goes on to say, Impress upon children the truth that the exercise of the elective franchise is a social duty of as solemn a nature as man can be called to perform. That a man may not innocently trifle with his vote that every elector is a trustee as well for others as himself and that every measure he supports has an important bearing on the interest of others as well as on his own. What they're trying to tell us is that we're in this together. And if you're derelict in your stewardship, that's going to affect me. And quite frankly, I'm offended at the Christian church. 
I'm offended that they are bastardizing my grandchildren's future over their piety and their squeamish spirit that they can't stand up and argue and debate, but instead they go to a prayer meeting. Now, Tim, that is no dig on the prayer meetings that you're leading, so please understand, I'm not saying that we should not be praying, and thank God, Tim, you are leading that effort. So don't misunderstand that I don't believe in prayer. But I'm telling you, we Christians have come up with catchy little biblical phrases to absolve us of difficult responsibility. Because we can go to a prayer meeting. That doesn't cost us anything but an hour or so. We can go to church. We just won't be the church. Because that's too costly. Now let me tell you, there are people in this world that know the value of a vote. These people in the Middle East who got to vote for the very first time in their lives. You're talking about vote security there. You don't just show a driver's license or something. You have to dip your finger in ink that has to wear off. It won't wash off so they can know you voted. But as they voted, they held those fingers up as a testimony of their belief in liberty. Could have cost them their lives, by the way, by holding that finger up. Because those Muslim forces and leaders, they don't like this stuff. They don't like liberty. They're just like leftists. They're just another, they're just a leftist in a different coat. Look at this lady. Look how proud she is that she was able to dip her finger in that ink. We Americans run from the ink. Preachers, I can't get political in the pulpit. Well, then you're going to lose your pulpit. James Garfield, most of you know, was a preacher. When he got involved in governance, he pursued that, and it wasn't possible for him to pastor in his day. But I want you to listen to what he said in July of seven, uh, excuse me, 1877. You've heard this quote before. Now more than ever, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt... If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt. Hello, James Langford. It is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. I see Christians, and and I've known James for years. When I was the pastor at Trinity, James preached in our pulpit a number of times. I love James. James even stepped out of Republican protocol and actually endorsed me when I was running for the state house in the primary. Something Republicans never do. Unless it's Trump. And then, of course, they'll come out against him in every way they know how. But he did endorse me. So if James ever hears this, I love James. But James is wrong for apologizing. For, for objecting to the electors when we know there was blatant fraud. And then to make it something that's racist. And to point out the blacks who live in Tulsa. As though the, the folks who are not darker skinned because they have less melatonin in their skin. Uh, they're, 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 I mean melatonin. Uh, they're, they're somehow uh, uh, less important. Or what about the others across the state of Oklahoma? That their skin is... is uh, 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 lighter 
I, I don't guess James is worried about offending them. He's just worried about offending those whose skin is darker. And pointed out those in Tulsa specifically. Well, forgive me, James, but I thought we elected you to represent the whole state. He says, if it be intelligent, brave, and pure, it's because the people demand those high qualities to represent them in the national legislature. People demand it. And he says, that's why it is. If the next centennial does not find us a great nation, you could say that right now, it will be because those who represent the enterprise, the culture, and the morality of the nation do not aid in controlling the political forces. That's us. Friends, that's us. You have a stewardship. How well are you doing with it? Many have heard this quote before. John Adams said in 1777, Posterity, you will never know how much it costs the present generation. My generation is what he's saying. To preserve your freedom. I hope you will make good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that ever I took half the pains to preserve it. What would our framers, they weren't all perfect. They weren't even all Christians. What would they say to our spineless Christian excuses for not getting engaged? Last point and then we're done. Stewards will give an account for their performance. The Bible is abundantly clear. Here's a couple of passages. Let a man so consider us, Paul said, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. We all know the stories of those who were watchmen at the gate who abandoned their post and the barbarians were able to breach the walls. Let me tell you a story you may or may not know. The night that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, they did not have secret service like we have today. But they did have what they call footmen who would drive the carriage and would be there to kind of help the president and kind of in a way to watch over the president. You remember he and, and Mary had gone to Ford's Theater to watch our American cousin right next door to the Ford's Theater actually attached. So when they had fires in those days, you'd burn down half the town because all these buildings were conjoined there was, and I believe the name is uh, Tatavolt, but forgive me if I mispronounce the name, but there was a saloon next door. A man whose last name was Parker was positioned at the door of the box where Lincoln was seated watching the play. Now, that man got a hankering for a drink and went next door to get a drink. And when Booth came upstairs, there was no one at the door. Had Parker been there, there's always the possibility that Booth would have not been able to gain access. And history would have been very different. How different? I don't know. Probably pretty different. He wasn't at his post. He needed a glass of booze. It's like the American church is intoxicated and we're not at our post. 
And we're all singing hallelujah and praise God and writing some of the best praise songs there's ever been written, maybe. But we're not at the door. Luke 16, 1 and 2. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought against or brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Matthew 25, 21. In another passage, talking about stewardship, the one who, you remember the parable of the talents? His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You remember the one, two of them took their talents and invested them and, and got more? You were faithful over few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. What about the one who buried his talent? Didn't do anything with it. Still had it. Didn't lose it. Well, I'm still a Christian, aren't I? Yes. You're still a Christian. Well, listen to what Jesus says. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Friends, is it Possible that God is taking our buried talents away from us today? We're losing our liberties left and right. Well, maybe it's because we've been burying them. Luke 16, 8. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. Now, this is the end of the story of a steward that hadn't done a good job. But after his master said, you're finished. The steward thought, man, i got to regain my position. So he went out and he found men that owed his master like $100 and they settled for 50 He found another guy that owed his master 50 and they settled for 25 I'm paraphrasing, but you get the idea. He brought back the money. These were debts that were probably never going to be repaid. The master had written them off and this steward had regained his credibility. And so the master takes him back in. He says, wow, you collected 50% of debts I'd written off 100% of. Now, why did I read that passage of Scripture? Well, because I think the Lord is trying to get us to see that we can regain our stewardship, if we will. If we will. So I want to close with this, and then we're, we're done. I've already quoted from Samuel Adams once. This is a quote that I use every time I do the black robe presentation. He gave this in a letter to James Warren in 1780. He said, if ever a time should come that vain and aspiring men possess the highest seats in government, our country will stand in need of its most experienced patriots to prevent its ruin. I believe that the Lord is calling upon Christian patriots to begin to be good stewards of ourselves, of our families, of our faith, of our churches, but also of our communities and of our liberties. So then what do we do, Dan? Well, we we stand up. And if need be, we resist. Is it biblical for a Christian to resist? Yes, yes it is. And the next time that I speak to you, I'm going to deal with that very subject. So what do we do? What do we do when they surround us? You resist. You resist. But that message would have been kind of dangling out there 
by itself without a good foundation if I hadn't talked to you first about your stewardship. My stewardship. 